0: Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name's Seth, and I am a father-to-be, so I'm excited about that. If you, uh, you do me a huge favor, and if you have any helpful parenting advice, just keep it to yourself, because I just don't want that. You know, Taylor comes to the five, which means that, like, none of you are tempted to, like, tell her about your opinions about childbirth, but you might be, and don't. Just be tempted, acknowledge the temptation, and then don't listen to it. You know, that's... that's that's, a, that's, how that, that's how that process works. So I get to talk to us. Uh, I walked through this text with us this morning. I'm really excited about it. This text has been um, a big deal in my own personal life. You know, um, when I was 17, I, got, I came onto staff at this church, and I had three different pastors mentoring me because I think they're doing risk management, and they had all of them doing it at the same time, you know. And, but I had one pastor pull me aside at lunch. Um, so this all happened in, this, in the scope of two weeks. One guy took me to lunch and said, hey, Seth, you're super prideful. Um, I want you to memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And I said, easy, I'll nail that. And I went home, memorized it, came back the next week, and was like, boom, what else you got? Not prideful. You know, like, uh, got it, memorized. Then another guy took me out to lunch and said, hey, Seth, you know, we've been seeing a lot of, or I've been seeing a lot of pride in your life. I don't know if these guys had, like, a pre-meeting ahead of time and then, like, swooped in on me and says, hey, I want you to read this book by Andrew Murray. It's called Humility. You should read this book. And I thought, you know, sweet. we need it done by next week, no problem. Read the book, you know, came back, read the book. What else you got? It was, you know, I thought you were trying to challenge me here, you know. And then another guy come up to me and say, hey, Seth, how's working on your pride going? I said, excellent. You know, I'm pretty, (laughs) I don't. Why? You know? <laughs> like, a, why do people keep talking about this? I don't know what your problem is. I worked on that last week. We can move on. You know? and, and, and this is this is weird reality about pride, which is the opposite of humility, um, and how my experience in particular is that it's kind of like if you want to work on your humility, the best way to do it is to like not to like try to become humble. Um, or the, if you want to work on your pride and like you stare at your pride you'll end up kind of just being proud about how you conquered your pride. And it's this real kind of self-defeating downward spiral that ends up making you just more concerned with yourself and obsessed with yourself. And so I've kind of found that like working with like pursuing humility or leaving behind pride is sort of like you know trying to look at you know the solar eclipse. You gotta kind of look next to it and, and look forward. And even here, when Paul is instructing the church to like, hey, you need to be humble. He doesn't say, how do you be humble? Well, focus on repenting from your pride. Mostly, he says, focus on looking at the way that Jesus lived. That if we wanna actually become humble people in the way of Jesus, the way is not to just become increasingly self-obsessed regarding our pride, chronically self-examining ourselves, thinking like, am I prideful, is this prideful, is this prideful? But rather, it's to actually behold and gaze at and look to Jesus. He says, look to this path of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did this and this and this and this. And so it's actually a matter of beholding and staring at and gazing at Jesus that we actually find ourselves almost accidentally as a symptom growing in humility. That it's actually our obsession with and our worship of and our connection to and our beholding of Jesus that will lead us towards humility. So if you're anything like me and you're like an A-type person who loves to like receive challenges and then conquer them and then win, um, that means that you are arrogant. <laughs> and, that, and that also means that this conversation about humility might be self-defeating. I'm gonna start working on humility and then look at me, how humble I am. You know, um, look at me as an example. And so we're gonna do this as, as we look through this. So we're gonna look at humility, but mostly we're gonna look through humility through the lens of Jesus. So we're gonna see four things about humility. We're gonna see the purpose of humility, and the ways which distort that purpose. Um, The problem, what's getting in the way of our humility, and ultimately we're gonna see the path and the promise, that is the death and the resurrection, how we look at Jesus and follow his example as we seek to become humble people. So let's pray and then we'll dive into this text and meet with Jesus. Father, thank you for your son and his humility, and his humility is the stuff of our salvation. That if Jesus did not humble himself, we would be totally lost. We'd be absolutely unsaved. And God, I'm thankful that he chose obedience so that we now can choose obedience in him. God, I ask that you will work on our hearts and minds this morning and speak to us in this text. In the name of your son, I pray. Amen. So first things first, we see the purpose of humility. Look with me in um, chapter 2, verse 2. So Paul is saying if there's any encouragement in Christ, which he's saying there is, if there's any comfort from love, which there is, any participation in the Spirit, which you have, any affection and sympathy, any love for one another as a people. So if you all really are Christians, which you are, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being of full accord and of one mind. So Paul here is mostly saying that the big idea here and the thrust and the purpose for why I'm gonna get into this discussion of humility is so that you would be unified that you would be together. This language of full accord and of one mind is all about diversity in the midst of unity. That full accord language is actually musical language. A chord is a sound of multiple notes. And you think about this band here, there's lots of different instruments playing different chords, but simultaneously they all together, it's their diversity coming together that makes one sound that makes it beautiful. That God designs each of us differently, and some of those differences are sinful and need be repented of, but some of those differences are just the unique individual ways that God has molded us and shaped us, that our personalities, our flinches, our instincts, our passions are all meant to be different so they can be complementary, that we would be a harmony of different notes coming together to make one beautiful sound all together as one people. See, our culture right now loves to talk about diversity as, a, as an important deal. I talk to folks who are on staff with big corporate companies, and they have diversity officers who just come around and shame people for not hiring enough people who check enough boxes and whatnot. And there's this whole thrust of listening to different perspectives. And some of that's really good. But what ends up happening is that by means of achieving um, their diversity, they actually end up demanding uniformity. That the world around us always talks about diversity, but ends up demanding total uniformity. That the only path to unity that our world around us sees is is through uniformity. We have to believe the same, think the same, talk the same. That you can be a part of us, but if you're not like us or if you disagree with us on something, you have to go somewhere else. Hey, we care about diversity, but if it's a diverse sexual ethic, you don't get to be a part of this. We care about diversity, but if it's about believing that you know the Jesus the way, the truth, and life, we don't want that diversity here. You have to go somewhere else. And the irony of this non-tolerant diversity pursuit in our world is, is lost, But the question there is not so much just about cultural criticism, but how do we as a church, that all of you are different people with different passions, different problems, different, different desires, different preferences, And we gather as one people. What's the way that we do that? Well, um, the path to biblical diversity is actually a diversity in the midst of unity. It's actually unity in the midst of diversity, that we're not all called to be the same. We're called to be ourselves, but sanctified in Jesus. In this one accord, a full accord, that we would be making the same music together, that there'd be this unified noise coming from us that people around us can hear and be attracted to and wanna participate in, but having the one mind, and that one mind is the mind of Christ, the mind of humility. That the chief motive that Paul's offering for us, for our humility, is that if you want to be one people, if you want to be a family, if you want to be together, it will require humility. The second purpose that God gives us here in this text is in verse 11. In every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the word glory means heavy, or weighty. And so this is kind of a way of sneaking around. If someone says, like, how do I look in these jeans? You can say glorious. you know, And it's a uh, You look weighty in those jeans, but it's this heaviness. There's a there's a depth to it. There's a severity to it. There's a you notice it. And so if I'm carrying around a bag full of rocks, I notice it. It's on me. It's a similar thing with the fear of the Lord. I'm aware of it. And so when God is made much of, when I'm giving God glory, I'm noticing Him all the time. I had a friend who one time used to make music videos for rap artists, and he'd make these videos of like girls shaking their butts on the screen, and he'd post it to the glory of God. And I would say, that's not how that works. You don't get just to do something and hashtag glory of God instead say glory of God. No, glory of God's actually a reflection of a disposition of someone who's aware that God is with them everywhere they go, and it's actually leading them towards meaningful holiness. And so sometimes what'll happen as Christians is we will get all caught up in trying to be more holy and be more like Jesus so that other people can pay attention to us. You want me to work on humility? Sweet, I'm gonna become humble so that you notice. You want me to work on my pride? great. I'll be a man that people can look at and admire. You want me to grow in my Christian faith? I want to be a man of God so that people see me as a man of God. What happens is we end up pursuing holiness as a way of glorifying ourselves, making much of ourselves, trying to get people to pay attention to us. In our current social media age, everything we do is about this personal branding project. Very rarely are we able to even be present to people without there being a phone in between us documenting what's going on. It's hard for us to be present in meaningful situations without thinking about doing it for the gram or throwing it up on Facebook or complaining about whatever's going on so they get likes and attention. That we have this chronic moment in our culture where we're always trying to glorify ourselves, bring attention to ourselves, have people notice us, see me, see me, see me. And if humility for us is one of the ways that we go about doing that, we will be totally lost. This is exactly what was going on when I was sharing earlier. The people would say, hey Seth, you're prideful. And I'd say, another task for me to win. I'll become less prideful. In your own pursuit, whether it's spiritual disciplines, following Jesus, showing up to church, do you use some of those things as ways of just branding yourself so that people notice you and see you? So the purpose of humility is unity and to make much of the Father. Unity that points past us to God the Father. We're not trying to make a name for Redemption Gateway. We're not trying to make a name for the 1045 service. We're not trying to make a name for the Trout household. We're not trying to make a name for the Southeast Valley. We're trying to make a name for God the Father. And so our pursuit of humility, we have to begin with the why. And the why is so that we can be a unified testimony of the Father's goodness and closeness and love. The second thing we see is the problem, the obstacle for humility. Um, now a lot of us, we talk about pride as the obstacle, but pride can be so vague and religious that a lot of times we don't know what it means. Like for example, in my life, I remember um, being growing up in the church and being told all the time, pride is bad, pride is bad, pride is bad, but not totally sure what that meant. And then what happened is I went to McKamey Middle School in Tempe and our mascot was the pride. And I remember thinking like, hmm, I knew I shouldn't have gone to public school. You know. Like, their mascot is sin the, the worst sin but then you find out oh pride means a group of lions you know and I thought like why do not they name us the McClintock Lions that'd be way better than the McClintock pride McHamey Pride and then I went, would remember going to um, high school and they were talking about taking pride in your school and I'm going like what I was told my whole life, pride's bad. Now, like people are saying, take pride in your school. And then uh, that was like kind of the big time when they started having Pride Month, the month of June. And I'm like, man, they have a whole month devoted to like hating God. You know, <laughs> like the Pride Month. You know, Pride's all about disregarding God. And what I started to notice in particular as a freshman and sophomore is that the the guys in my youth group who are and juniors and seniors who were like actually good at stuff when we had like times to share about what we all struggled with, they would say they struggled with pride. And it's like, oh, that sounds pretty nice. I want to be like them, I want to struggle with pride. You know, the the people who like didn't lead stuff and were bad at stuff, they struggled with insecurity or whatever. And I was like, I don't want to deal with that. So the people that I liked and I wanted to be like, you know, and so pride ended up becoming like the safe thing to confess, right? You sit around in a circle, a group of guys, and like, what do you guys struggle with? And it's like Pride. Oh, okay. Pride. Oh, okay. Lust. Disgusting. Pride. You know, and it's like this like, there's like this, uh, this weird gap on pride is like the safe thing to talk about, right? Because all I'm saying is that I think I'm God of my life. Just pride. I mean, what's the big deal with that? So I think sometimes we get pride, and that's all like what I end up seeing is that most Christians talked about pride and what they're really meaning to say was arrogance. Or this, sometimes when people were just like in a healthy, holy way, confident in what God had given them to do, they would call that pride, and I think that's wrong. Rather, I think that um, pride isn't necessarily arrogance, but arrogance is always pride. But sometimes pride looks like insecurity as well that when I am self-obsessed or when I'm connected, this is what Paul says here in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition, so branding myself, trying to be noticed, attention-seeking behavior, this desire to make people notice me as much as possible, or conceit, this kind of self-centric view of the world, that I can be conceited and deeply insecure because I'm not winning, or I can be succeeded and deeply arrogant because I'm succeeding. But both of those are rooted in a self-preoccupation Sharon Miller said it like this. She says, there are two primary causes of insecurity. The first we talk about all the time, low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is an inability to see ourselves the way God sees us. When our self-image is primarily shaped by wounds or lies, the pain is real and damaging and the gospel has an answer for it. God absolutely desires to restore our self-understanding by aligning it with the truth of his word. We rightly respond to low self-esteem with biblical affirmation. There's a second cause of our insecurity, self-preoccupation. What we need isn't to think more highly of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. The reason self-preoccupation causes insecurity is that it raises the stakes on dating, parenting, working, serving, by turning it all into a referendum on our worth. Every slight, every rejection, every awkward interaction must be about us. Such a focus is crushing. That's what she's describing here, is this idea of being conceited, self-preoccupied, some of you, even in this discussion about humility, you immediately think you're very humble because you're deeply insecure and have low self-esteem. You're not. Low self-esteem, deep, crippling insecurity is actually pride because you're saying, my view of myself matters more than God's view of me. Because you are made in the image of God, deeply beloved, pursued, chosen, desired, wooed, given gifts, given abilities, called to subdue and have dominion over the face of the earth, and God has entrusted things for you to do. And if you sit there and say, I don't matter, I'm not that valuable, you disagree with God, and you think that your interpretation is more important than his, and that's pride. If that's you and you have this low self-esteem thing, the answer isn't just to develop high self-esteem, but the answer is to begin to develop agreement with God on who he says you are. Not a rah-rah, I can do it, but God has created me and he is creating in me a new heart so I don't have to hate myself. Hating yourself is pride. On the other side, there's those of you who are deeply conceited and think that you are the best thing that God ever made. And you tell your wife that all the time. You're pretty lucky to be married to me. And I'm shocked at the treatment I get from you. I'm like royalty, and you're like it. And there's this, this hubris, self-inflated deal. And here's another thing. is like, that is also pride. Arrogance is pride. How do you distinguish between arrogance and confidence? I would say um, arrogance, especially in a biblical sense, is self-confidence apart from God's creation. And it's actually self-confidence that makes you view yourselves in a hierarchy compared to other people when you say that my gifting and talent is worth more than other people's gifting and talent. I am up here by myself apart from you because of something that I did. It's actually this entitled high view of self. And these are the enemies. So I'd say those things, both low self-esteem and self-preoccupation, lead to an insecurity because even if you project as an arrogant, confident person, there's this deep, terrorizing fear you have that at any moment you could shatter the illusion and fall through the glass and people will see you for being what you really are and that's a pretender. So pride and insecurity both manifest in low self-esteem or in chronic self-preoccupation. So that's what gets in the way of this. The question is, what do we do about it? Like I said earlier, Jesus, or Paul, um, Jesus through Paul is actually pointing to us. Here's what you do, here's the path. So I want us to see this, that this is a way of participating in what Jesus has done to appropriate his mindset and heart to us, because we wanna have the mind of Christ, that ultimately pride is not the mind of Christ. The only person who could have been technically okay with having pride is Jesus, and he didn't take it. So here's the path um, that we're gonna look at. It starts um, in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what we're gonna see is actually Actually, there's four parts to this path. And the part one begins with this. It's cease grasping. Verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about a judge waving the gavel. The, the, the gavel represents the authority or the power. We're thinking about Thor from the Marvel Universe grabbing his hammer, and that's like the, the concentration of his power. Jesus had the authority of God. And he did not consider it a thing to be grasped, meaning that he, being fully God, had every single right and every single ability to exercise his will in every single way. And he, instead of holding on to that, let go of it and became a servant. Every single one of us has things we grasp and hold on to that we could use as excuses to not be servants. Sometimes it's our position as head of the house. Sometimes it's our position in the building. Sometimes it's our position as tired. Sometimes it's, it's an, a seat or a, or a thing you occupy. Sometimes it's your bank account. Sometimes it is your sense of self. Sometimes it's your own anxiety and your inability to take seriously other people because you're chronically self-obsessed. That we're all holding on to these things that help us feel okay and like we have an identity apart from God. But the first thing that Jesus does is he did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped. What are you grasping that causes you to take yourself so seriously that you can't serve the people around you? What are you holding on to? Is it your sense of comfort? Is it your sense of bank account? Is it your sense of other people? Is it your wounding? Is it your past struggles? Is it your present desire to be taken seriously by yourself? What are you grasping? The path towards maturity begins with letting go of your sense of ego, your sense of self. You know, think about this. It, it's like if you have a toe that's broken, you notice it all the time. Your toe that's not broken, you never notice it. It's the same with the ego. When your ego is broken, you notice yourself all the time. And when the ego's healed, we can let go of it and not notice it anymore. Stop grasping. What are you holding on to? The second thing we see here is unbalancing the scale. This is verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but interests of others. So here what it says is look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Some of you who have a poor sense of boundaries or really low self-esteem, you just don't even look to your own interests. You just allow yourself to be used up raisin and you become bitter because you say yes to people all the time, you never say no, you overserve, and you get mad at them for asking you to say, for asking them to do, for when they ask you to do stuff. You need to look to your own interests. There's a recognition here of you staying alive. It's the whole idea of when the plane thing goes down, you put the mask on yourself first then you put the mask on other people. Some of you are shriveling up because you can't tell people no because you feel like you have to save everybody. You feel like if you don't, then who will? And there's actually this prideful sense of Messiah that comes from not telling people no, because I have to save people. Otherwise, they will not be saved. So it's not saying don't look to your own interests. It's saying look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And what it ends up saying here is count other people more significant than yourselves. Think about it like this like an old school. Um, uh, weight and measures thing, where you wait, put something on here and you put something on here, and kind of balances out. Those of you who are into like made up stuff like astrology, it's like the Libra thing, you know, like the, the balancing of the scale. And what ends up happening is everybody in this room and every person on the planet believes that they're not biased. You know how many people out here describe themselves as political moderates who are just not? Oh, I'm right in the middle, I'm the best of both worlds. I hear, I listen. Everyone believes they're biased. Everybody believes they're not biased and everyone's biased. It's kind of like when people say that they're very good listeners. Those people are the worst listeners. I hear you. I hear you. I'm a good listener. <laughs> people who are convinced that they're bad listeners, they really have to hone in and pay attention and listen. But here's the, believe that you are biased in favor of yourself significantly. And then what you need to do is then count everybody else's as more significant than your own. So if everybody kind of begins with the scale that suppose there's like one pound always in favor of you, what Paul is saying here is do the opposite. Kind of like think about it like this. If you have a family of four and you're the dad, you get one vote and the other three people get two votes. You literally count others as more weighty or significant than yourselves. This is the message to people who are in power, positions of power in particular. That when you're in charge, you have to work extra hard to consider other people. And this actually is the measure of humility for Paul. Are you able to count others more significant than yourselves or not? Are you willing to count others more significant than yourselves or not? Now there's different ways that this could play out. Sometimes you count others more significant because they're powerful and privileged and we actually wanna count them more significant because we're a part of this branding project called I Wanna Be Close to Power. And sometimes we count other people more significant than ourselves because the whole point of this is self-preservation. That if I can just get them to like me, then maybe they will. But here we see this. I remember I had a different mentor who actually kind of begun to got through, get through to me on my pride. Maybe it's because he wasn't a pastor. He didn't use all this super religious language that kind of was easy to be dismissive about, but I was talking to him. We were in the weight room, and that's kind of how he would mentor me as we'd go work out, and I remember him telling me, like, how's the things at the church going? I was like, oh, it's fine. And he said, how's like, small talk in the lobby go? I said, oh, it's terrible. People are just freaking so boring. You know, They tell me about their stuff, and, I just can't handle it, all their dumb, you know, craziness, you know, and, and he, he's a, kind of a big, scary man, you know, and he looked at me and said, here's the deal, Seth, is people are interesting, and if you find them boring, then that's your problem. And he remember him telling me, like, your ability to be interested in other people is the measure of your humility. And the more I reflect on that, that was like probably 11 years ago, the more I see this reality of people are made in the image of God and God designed them and he's writing their story. And if I can't get on board with this curiosity and this listening and this showing up and paying attention with these people, then I am the boring one. You, maybe some of your parents say this when your kids say, I'm bored, and you say, boring people are bored. Go make something fun to do. You know? Similar, if you're bored with people, you're boring you're inattentive, you're a poor listener, you're prideful, you're arrogant. This happens all the time. So when people come to you and tell you about stuff and you're not interested, whose problem is that? Yours. I'm not saying everybody's an excellent storyteller, but I'm saying when your wife comes to you with a recipe and you go, not interested, you know what I say? Get over it and get interested. When your kid comes to you and likes Spider-Man comics and you think that comics are dumb, you know what you get to do? Get over it and get interested in Spider-Man comics. That's how this works, you count others more significant than yourselves, including their interests, to take an interest in people. C.S. Lewis actually put it like this. Think, <laughs> Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people ca- call humble nowadays. He will not be a person who's always telling you that he's nobody. Probably, all you will think about all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. To be interested in people. You know, some of the most interesting people I know are the most interested in other people, persons. They have this chronic curiosity that's not like they're interrogating people, like trying to find out what's really going on like not the skeptical questioning, light in the eyes, FBI thing, but just a genuine curiosity, like a friendly connection with people. So that's step two, is you unbalance the scale in favor of other people. Step three is change your posture. Though he's in the form of God, he did not count equality, he's got a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking. A lot of times we think that spiritual maturity is like this spontaneous internal thing that just develops and the spirit moves, and sometimes that's the case. But most of the time, it is you take an intentional step of faith to change your external behavior in a way that leads to eventual heart change. Sometimes heart change leads to behavior change. Sometimes behavior change leads to heart change. If you wanna have the mind of a servant, sometimes you need to go be treated like a servant for a while and feel how it feels. Tom Schrader, who planted uh, Redemption Gilbert a long time ago, he would say, everyone loves the idea of being a servant until you're treated like one. Some of you aren't servants. You don't adopt the mind of Christ. And a lot of it is this unwillingness to just serve, to hand out programs, to play with kids, to help set up chairs, to take out the trash at work. Pick a chore that your wife does, do it. Pick something that she really cares about that you don't care about, care about it and do it. Your wife doesn't care if the bed's made. I mean, your wife cares if the bed's made, you don't, make the bed, be a servant, take the form. That this external change in the posture often is what God uses to help us adopt the mentality in the heart of a servant. We don't just spontaneously sit around and wait. And last one is this fourth one, it says do not stop. I know many people who in their path of following Jesus in their desire to walk after him are obedient to the point of something or obedient up until the point of something. I'll be obedient all the way up until the point of financial inconvenience. I'll be obedient all the way up until the point of my employee doesn't respect me like they're supposed to. I'll be obedient all the way up until the point of it's 3 a.m. and I don't want to get the milk out of the freezer. And I'll be obedient up until the point of it's 4.30 a.m. and I did the 3.30 a.m. It's your, your turn. I'll be obedient up until the point of My neighbors disrespect me. I'll be obedient up until the point of my sexual gratification isn't immediately checked. But I am thankful that Christ was not obedient up until the point of, but he was obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, God, the only person in the history of the world who had every right to say, no, solve your own problems, instead say, yes, I will solve your problems. I will take the form of a servant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that does not mean that it was always easy for him. When you read the gospels, you see the agony of the way of Jesus, that even on the night that he was betrayed, he prayed in the garden and said, I do not want to do this. If there's any other way, let it be. But nonetheless, your will be done. And the father said, there's no other way. You need to lay your life down as a servant. And the Lord said, thy will be done. And that is the hope of our life, the fact that Jesus wasn't obedient up until the point of inconvenience, but he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is our heart and our mind as people who wanna follow Jesus. What is the thing that is holding you back from being a true servant? Is it respect? Is it financial? Is it emotional? Is it your past hurts? Is it your position at work? Is it the commute? Is it your what? What? What's your I'll be obedient up until the point of what's your thing that if Jesus doesn't let you have what you want here, then you're out. We all have things that are competing for God in our lives. For most of us it's ourself. Sometimes it's other things. Think through that. Do not stop. And here's the last piece is the promise. This is verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and, beho- and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus does the dying and the Father does the rising. And it's the same in our life. That every one of us, this is what 2 Timothy 2 says, it says that if we have, this thing is trustworthy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him every single one of us by nature of even being a christian have in a many in a sense died to ourselves we've said i am no longer going to see myself as god i'll see god as god that's part of repentance who's the lord of my life not me but there's this every single day walking that out applying it that i need to live in And so we can, on a daily basis, die in the small things and die to ourselves in the big things, internally and externally. Die to our perspective, die to our selfish ambition, die to our conceit, die to our interests for the sake of other people's interests. We can die to these on a regular basis. And the reason we're able to do that is ultimately our security and trust in the grace of Jesus. That on the last day at the resurrection, I will be raised and perishable and be with the Son. That is our ultimate hope. So hope is not optimism. I hear a lot of Christians who are optimists. I'm not an optimist, not because I'm a pessimist, but I think that optimism is mostly naive, but I believe in hope. Hope is a true belief in a future act of God. Optimism is just this belief that things get better because human progress or whatever. I really believe in a future act of God to make all things new, that's hope, it's not optimism. And so, what enables me on a regular basis to die to myself, and what enables you on a regular basis to die to yourself, and what enables us on a regular basis to say no to our interests and others, is the fact that God sees even others don't see. Is the fact that I'm following in the way of Christ. I'm sharing in Christ's sufferings. Not all suffering is sharing in Christ's sufferings, but the suffering that leads me to serve for the name of Jesus to the glory of the Father, this is sharing in Christ's sufferings that I die with Him so that I will be raised with Him. Now, a lot of you, you get to experience what we call foretaste of that future resurrection, meaning you serve your wife on Friday and on, all weekend long, you have a, a rich, well-connected marriage. You get down on your stomach and play with your kids on Monday and you get to make this eye contact with your child and it's rich. You serve and are unseen and go the extra mile and don't cut corners at work, you get a promotion. That's a foretaste of the resurrection. We serve and God raises. But a lot of you, you have had no foretaste, no preview of that future resurrection. You've served in unseen ways, you've been kind, you've been considerate, you've given away, you've been generous and it's just death upon death upon death upon death, not being noticed, not reaping any rewards, no real benefit and you're just obeying and the descent is long and it's lonely. Thank you for doing that. I hope you keep on that path. I pray that you get these glimmers of resurrection and that you experience moments of real encouragement and you see the effect and the benefit, but ultimately if we're serving in order to reap reward, that's just self-interested motivation again. But we serve to be with Jesus. We die to be risen ultimately on the last day, maybe in chunks here and there until then. I think about, in particular, a handful of friends that I have who serve and people maybe don't notice. Like a woman who's new to the job, most competent person on the staff, she has to deal with these people who are less competent than her and her bosses. And she could gripe and complain and turn it into this intention-seeking opportunity, but she serves and allows them to be in process and lets them develop and grow. Think about another friend of mine who's a CEO of a tech company and he holds babies in this church on a regular basis, and he doesn't want attention for it. Think about another friend of mine who's in this chronically gossipy environment and gets excluded relationally because she won't participate in the anxiety dust storm of who's gonna get it next. She doesn't get noticed for that. She gets left out for that. And a lot of you who have served in unseen ways, who have died to yourself, have died to yourself, and it hasn't been thanked, hasn't been noticed, but you're staying on the path. That's one of the things I love about this letter and I love about this church, is Paul says this. Have this mind among yourselves, verse five, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying this in an encouraging way. I see this mind in you already. Fan it into flame. Think about a fire log that needs to be poked and prodded for the fire to keep going, but the fire's already there. I feel like this fire's already burning at this church when I talk about new folks in their first experience, in the lobby, whatever it is, there's an attentiveness, a willingness to see people, an ability to walk slow and to be curious, that I see this in our church in really powerful ways. And I think it's because we all have a friend who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of servant, being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the man we wanna follow. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you that your son chose the way of humility, the way of obedience. God, I ask that we would be a people who would follow after that spirit, that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we'd trust you enough to die to ourselves, trusting in a future resurrection, that when we feel unseen, unnoticed, unthanked, and uncared for, that we'd be able to meaningfully engage with you. Help us share in those sufferings. In the name of your son we pray, Amen. amen.